Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In this episode, I speak with public defender Kara Dansky as she discusses being professionally blacklisted after her Tucker Carlson interview, the March 8th Women's Picket DC event, and what's next for the women's movement. Kara has lost her livelihood and deep friendships at the hands of mass hypnosis and cult expressions demonstrated by trans ideology, and she breaks down the complicity of the media in brainwashing the population. She also acknowledges how scary it is to escape the ubiquitous movement, detaching us from our physical reality. Kara aptly discusses the overt rape culture of men invading women's spaces and her efforts to protecting women and girls amidst the divisiveness, saturating mother-child relationships, and of course, sisterhoods. The depth of deprogramming necessary can feel daunting, but Kara assures us that we are smart women, that we can do this, and that the problem is not us. Stepping into advocacy often seems harder than it actually is. Thank you so much, Kara, for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I think any radical feminist at this point is um, familiar with you and the work that you've been doing um, for women and girls. And so, yeah, really honored to have you. One point of curiosity that I had today getting ready to speak to you is um, you know, a little bit about your journey into this sector of, of legal practice. Um, uh, and so would you mind just kind of first just talking a little bit about how you came to do what you're doing now? Sure. And first, thank you so much for, for having me on to talk about this. So, so I went to law school several decades ago, and I want to say I have always considered myself to be a feminist. But essentially what happened was that after law school, I got into the criminal justice practice. My, my main first job after law school was working in the federal court system because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to do feminist legal advocacy. Maybe I wanted to take a different approach. And working in the federal court system, I learned a lot about how the criminal justice system is really messed up in the US. And I decided I wanted to go that route. So I became a public defender and I went on to run a criminal justice research and policy agency at Stanford Law School, very much you know, around um, punishment policy, sentencing policy, policing policy. And after that, I ended up going to the ACLU where I served as senior counsel on criminal justice issues. And so at that point, I had kind of made a bit of my name of a name for myself doing criminal justice law and policy work and then 2014 happened and so so what happened was if your um if your subscribers want to want to google aclu war comes home you'll find a report that was published in 2014 by the aclu on the subject of police militarization that came out right around the same time of ferguson so it got a lot of attention I was frequently consulted by the media to talk about it. And um, that was the summer of 2014. And at that time, I wasn't really paying too much attention to feminism. It's not that I didn't care. It's just that I was doing other things professionally. 
And then at the end of 2014, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who is a black radical feminist lesbian. And we're just having this great conversation. We're talking about racism in the US. We're talking about sexism in the US. And for some reason, all of a sudden, I said something about transgender rights. And she stopped me in my tracks and she said, absolutely not. And she basically educated me. So, you know, I don't say that I have a peak trans moment that we often talk about because I never really was into trans. You know, I, I kind of thought that as a good liberal, that accepting transgender is what I needed to do to be a good liberal, but I was never very critical about it. I never thought that much about it. And I certainly wasn't all over social media screaming trans women are women. Um, I was never much an activist either for or against it. So 2014 changed all that. Um, 2015, I ended up moving to New York City and a couple things happened. One thing that happened is I was working for a very short time at the mayor's office uh, doing criminal justice policy in New York. I ended up stopping that uh, professionally for several reasons and I wanted to become an independent consultant and do my own work. So around the same time, I joined Women's Liberation Front. So from 2015 to 2018, I, professionally speaking, I was uh, doing independent consulting work. And because I had made kind of a name for myself in the criminal justice reform world, I was able to get tons of clients who brought me on to do all sorts of really interesting projects. And I was able to do that for a full three years. And also at, this, at the same time, I was really ramping up my radical feminist activism. And I ended up joining the board of Wolf, which I was on for a couple of years. And then I ended up going on Tucker Carlson in February of 2017, right? No, no for liberals. So but I did it, I did it. And uh, I'm proud to say that the Wolf website crashed uh, that night that I went on Tucker Carlson for the first time. And at some point along the way, as my radical feminist activism is ramping up, I have a client in my criminal justice world, you know, I'm keeping them to the best I can, I'm keeping these things completely separate. In my criminal justice world, my client calls me up. She says, we have to have an awkward conversation. And the bottom line is that she had to take me off a project. And what she said was, I learned somehow about your Tucker Carlson interview. And then she said, even though I do not want to take you off this project, I have to because I'm being told that your presence in this project is toxic. That was her word. And the thing of it is, she was very clear. She was like, I do not want to take you off of this thing. You know, you can think whatever you want about gender identity. I love working with you on criminal justice work, but I'm being told that you're toxic, so I have to take you off. And the thing is, I couldn't even really be mad at her because she wasn't wrong. She was absolutely not wrong, right? Feminists talking out about this stuff does make everything on the left toxic. So that was the first time I lost my livelihood. And, uh, I ended up going back to work for a different city agency, this time in Washington, DC. And I worked there for just over a year and a half, or just around a year and a half. And what ended up happening there is that someone on Twitter tweeted the Washington, DC city council and tagged me and you know said I was a turf and all these things and included a, a picture of uh, an appearance that I had done at the Heritage Foundation. And my poor boss had no idea what to do with it because she doesn't know anything about this issue. Again, we were solely focused on punishment policy. It had nothing to do with gender. 
So she doesn't understand the gender stuff. She definitely didn't understand Twitter. And so when the city council member called her, called her into his office and reamed her out and you know, yelled at her and said, why is this person tweeting at us and tagging her? And my poor boss was so confused. She had no idea what was going on. Long story short, um, it looked for a while like my employer, the city agency might fire me which I thought would have been great because that would have given me grounds to sue them. But they didn't end up firing me. What they did end up doing was saying, um, we found a way to work it out. But at the end of the day, it was perfectly clear to me that this harassment wasn't gonna stop. They were gonna keep harassing me. They were gonna keep harassing my boss. It was gonna continue to be uncomfortable. And so I voluntarily resigned. And that was in early 2020. I should say I'm no longer on the Wolf Board. Um, this past year, I've started really ramping up work with the Women's Human Rights Campaign at a national and international level. So that was really long, but thank you for asking. Wow, thank you so much for outlining that. You know, I, I, I think it's, yeah, I hear, you know, the, the stories that I'm most familiar with at this point are women actually more on entry level kind of jobs and like social circles. And so it's really interesting to hear kind of um, such kind of high profile jobs, um, women in such powerful places and massive organizations targeting uh, the very women who are you know, doing the work that they want them to do. And then there's this one thing that just isn't aligning. And so they have to pluck pluck us out. Um, so that's really stark. And so what, so what then happened um, with your kind of alliance or, or work with the ACLU? Where did, where did that, how did that end? Or is it over? Like, how did that all go? So no one at the ACLU will talk to me. None of my former colleagues will talk to me. And it's, it, it's nearly impossible for me to get any kind of contract work, doing any kind of criminal justice work, because really none of my former colleagues at the ACLU or otherwise will have anything to do with me, for the most part. To, to what degree did you find that out? Were you reaching out to colleagues, calling them, emailing them, pleading with them? Like how, was it just kind of a total agreement that they all came to where it's like Kara is out I mean how did it how did it did it trickle did it taper off how did that how did that happen so I don't know for sure but when my client kicked me off the project what she told me is that it was staff at the ACLU of Texas I'll just say the, the project involved a really interesting um, really interesting work around the intersection between criminal justice and immigration justice at the U.S.-Mexico border. And I considered that to be really, really important work. And it was someone at the ACLU of Texas who told her that, that I was toxic. And it, it was hinted to me, and I've never been able to demonstrate this, it was suggested to me that my 2017 Tucker Carlson interview was actually shown to a staff as an example of how not to be a turf. Wow. I don't know if that, I don't know if that happened. My client sort of intimated to me that, that that may have happened. And yeah, I, I had a really, really good friend and colleague uh, whose special, whose specialty was in immigration policy. And we would get together and talk all the time professionally and socially, and she just won't return my emails. Did you, before you went on Tucker Carlson, did you feel that it was going to be a big shift 
at that point in 2017. I mean, did you, did you kind of, could you have imagined how, um, how many people, former colleagues, friends, like on the left would kind of just like X you out? Did you, did you ever imagine it would be this drastic? No, I didn't. But also doing this work, by which I mean, you know, gender critical feminist activism in law and policy for the past several years has not particularly felt optional to me. You know, this is like, we have to be doing this. We absolutely have to be doing this. And so when they invited me, um, it didn't have to be me to go on the show at the time. It could have been anyone on the Wolf board, but it was me in part because at that time I was chair of the board and in part because I happened to live in Washington, DC and I could go down to the studio. So I just felt compelled. Not doing it really didn't feel like an option. And, you know, not doing any of this doesn't feel like an option. This is an emergency. That, that's certainly how I feel um, at this point, just on the level that I'm, I'm working at. But uh, it really doesn't feel like a choice. I, I, I completely resonate with that. So the, like, the, the losing the friends and the colleagues and the thing just kind of like just, just kind of simmers away. It's hurtful and, and shocking and, and strange and as you said, yeah, I really appreciate what you said that we're, we're absolutely in an emergency. Um, yeah, and I also just want to add, um, I, I don't know about you, but I have found it to be very liberating. You know, back during those three years when I was doing criminal justice stuff over here and doing radical feminism over here, I felt a tremendous amount of fear. The answer to your earlier question is no, I did not see just how bad this would be. But I felt a tremendous amount of fear because I always knew at any point I could be outed, you know, and it could have impacts on my livelihood and on my friendships and on my family relationships. And that, that um, even though the work felt mandatory and I felt compelled to do the work anyway, I did feel a tremendous sense of fear and um, I felt really constrained. And now it just doesn't matter. What else do I have to lose? It's very liberating. And it's also very liberating to speak the truth. I completely agree. It's, it feels so good. And I actually, I actually have now started to kind of frame it um, as like a, actually a health crisis on a, on a very individual level and societal level to, to continue to silence ourselves. Like there's something that is so painful when women describe to me, especially the ones who feel like they'll describe to me that, it feels like they're living in their own prison, right? They've set the boundaries for themselves to not say this and to self-censor and to silence their, their thoughts. Um, and they describe just like, just, just these horrific bodily sensations, you know, which as we know, manifest into illness. Like we know that stress manifests into illness. So I actually, yeah, not only do I not see it as a, it's not an option anymore to stay silent, but actually as, as humans, as women, we actually can't afford to compromise our health in that way. Like the world needs our, our, our health to be optimal, to be able to run this planet, right? And so we actually can't afford to, to stifle our voice and to silence, ourselves, to silence ourselves anymore. And also, you know, with that, we know that there are different consequences for women. Some are violent, some are um, job, you know, terminations. We, you know, obviously we understand that the consequences vary um, drastically for, for each woman. And at this point, yeah, it's, I mean, what else could they do?
on the one hand, I think, well, they've already done the worst that they can do, but that's actually not true because we know that there's more on the other side of this. So um, my question is, how do we convey to women that it's not just happening over there, that there aren't just one case here where there was one autogynophilic violent men in that prison or that bathroom? Like, how do we convey to women that um, if we don't do something now, it's going to start showing up and showing up and showing up even more in our face where we can't kind of turn back the clock. Cause I, I feel like there is a dissonance in the, well, how many men actually do violate women in, in women's bathrooms or um, how many women actually did lose scholarships on, you know, because a man was allowed to compete against them in track competition. So yeah. How do we kind of bridge that gap um, between what's happening in a legislative legislative capacity and what's happening in women's like day-to-day -day lives? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to go back to your observation a minute ago about putting ourselves in a prison, I think you're absolutely right. And it, it occurred to me that in so many ways, it's no different from the prison that women were in, you know, at the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries, right? It was just a different kind of prison, but it's still a prison, right? We're still sort of molding ourselves and and speaking in a in a way that is designed to cater to the interests of men women have been doing this for a really long time so um i just wanted to note that in terms of understanding the pervasiveness of this one thing i would say is that it's it's important to understand that the idea that sex isn't real and meaningful has pervaded and captured every aspect of our society from the law at all levels. We're talking about local law, state law, federal law, statutory law, administrative law, um, the court system, journalism has been completely captured. What this means is that when a man commits a violent crime, journalists will often report it as though it's being committed by a woman. And that has implications for every woman and girl in this country and the world, honestly. Um, it has clearly captured academia. I know of at least one woman who's been kicked off her PhD program and had all of her funding taken away for statements that she's made about this. It's completely captured every aspect of our society and it's, it's very pervasive. And it's also not abstract. So in terms of the question, how many women and girls are actually impacted by this, how many women and girls have been raped in a prison? How many women and girls have lost scholarships? The answer to that question is, first of all, a lot. Uh, I have personally spoken with two women in a Texas prison who were required to share a locked prison cell with an intact male violent prisoner. And they were terrified. I mean, I spoke with them on the phone and you could hear the, the terror in their voices. We know of at least one case in Illinois in which a woman prisoner was sued by a man who claimed to be a woman and she is suing uh, the corrections department for failing to protect her. But of course, most of us aren't aware of these things because most of this stuff gets very little media attention. We know about the case in Connecticut where the four girls are suing their state athletic association because the association allows male athletes, boys to compete as girls 
and that that's not limited to Connecticut. Similar things are happening in Montana. Similar things are happening in Idaho. It's happening all over the country. And we should not delude ourselves into thinking that these are isolated incidents. They're not isolated. They're happening. I've, I said happening all over the country, and that's true. They're happening all over the world. They're happening throughout um, South America. They're happening throughout East Asia. Uh, I was speaking recently with an Indian feminist activist, and uh, she's absolutely terrified about what's going on in her country. So it's very real. It's very pervasive. It's very... Um, well, it's violent. I mean, we're talking about rape culture here. Let's just be very clear. We're talking about men forcing themselves into women's spaces, which is rape culture. But the other thing I would just end with is, is asking, if we think that these are isolated incidents, how many is too many? How many women have to get raped in prison by men who claim to be women before we care? How many girls, what's the acceptable number? How many girls have to lose scholarships before this becomes a problem? Is, is one an isolated incident? Is two too many? Is three too many? What's the right number? What's the acceptable number of women and girls who have to be either you know, raped, assaulted, deprived of a place in an athletic team, or you know, denied a scholarship, denied admission to a women's college because some man decided to say that he's a woman? How many? It's shocking. I, and it's like, I wonder, do you think it's that there are so many people under a mass hypnosis about this that they are still seeing it in the abstract? They can't see the real issues at hand. They don't want to acknowledge the real women and girls who are losing opportunities and their lives and their you know bodily autonomy. Or do you think it's that most people do know it's really messed up? And the problem that we're facing is a small number of people who are kind of pulling the strings with the law, you know, because like uh, that, that question for me feels so important right now in terms of where to direct energy. So what do you and I and I know obviously you know we we both are very familiar with Jennifer Billet's work, um, who points to these like these you know four five six trans humanist billionaire men um, who are behind the trans lobby. But like yeah, I, I have the thought: is it that people need to wake up, or is it that actually everybody knows this is messed up, but? it's not an issue of uh, kind of crowds coming together to fight this. I think part of it, part of it is the, um, the complicity of the media in all of this. So I, I honestly think that a lot of people still don't know. And, you know, I use my boyfriend sort of as the barometer for this. I was able to peak trans him pretty early in our relationship. And so almost every day, you know, he's sort of very typical liberal, you know, and um, I don't mean that as a complaint. I just mean like that's sort of the political demographic. And I ask him every day, if you and I had not spoken about this issue, would you know? And every day he says, no, he doesn't see it in his social media. He doesn't, which is astonishing to me, given what I see in my social media, but um, he doesn't see it in the news. Instead, what he sees is, more brainwashing. So 
you know, someone will be having a radio program on, who knows, something involving our trade policy with China. And then like somebody will make a comment, like, how does this affect trans people? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you even talking about? Well, I think there's a lot going on. In terms of the mass hypnosis, it's interesting that you use that word because I've started to do a little bit of research into cult practices. And I was connected with a man named Steve Hassan. He seems to be a fairly well-known cult expert. And I had a conversation with him. And the reason he got interested in this topic generally was specifically uh, because of the population of people that we have come to know as detransitioners, um, but really they're you know recovering from abuse. And um, he just became very fascinated in the question because he himself was in a cult and he's very public about that. So I'm not revealing anything. He got sucked into a cult and uh, he, he's very familiar with his own psychological process of extracting himself from it. And so he's turned this into his profession and he studied it and he's come up with models to look at. And he's interested in the, the so-called detransitioners because he was asking himself, as soon as he learned that that was a phenomenon, what would make a person fall so far down the lie that they're actually the opposite sex that they would be willing to mutilate their bodies? What is going on here? How is it possible that, because he didn't mutilate his body when he was in a cult. He completely reoriented his thinking uh, he was a left-leaning liberal Jewish guy, grew up in New York, and he ended up being a right-wing zealot who believed that the Holocaust didn't happen. And so he had to really, you know, decolonize himself from the cult leader's teachings, which he was able to do, thankfully. And so he's really curious about what the process these um, so-called detransitioners are going through. What happened to get them there? and how have they been able to pull themselves out of it? And so even though he's specifically interested in that community, I've been using his research and talking with him about the much broader issue of how has our society been able to, to get to this place where everyone, most people seem to be able to say that it's possible to be the opposite sex or be born in the wrong body. And that sounds normal to people. How did we get here? Um, there's another little piece of this that I think has to do with the parable of the emperor's new clothes, which is, if I remember, um, someone told, yeah, these, these fabric people <laughs> came to the emperor and said, we're gonna make you clothes using this very beautiful fabric. And, they didn't do anything at all. They got paid a lot of money and they didn't make anything because there was no fabric. But the emperor and all of his higher ups agreed that the fabric was beautiful. And then the emperor would stand there naked and uh, ask if his clothes were beautiful. And all of the people around him were so afraid of him that they confirmed that his clothes were beautiful, even though they could all see that he was naked. Nobody wanted to say it because they were afraid to say it. And everyone, you know, as you went down the line, everyone would, you know, you know, compliment him on his beautiful clothes. And because everybody was afraid to say that he was naked, nobody was willing to do it. And everybody thought 
that everybody else could see the clothes, right? So even if you start to think, wait a second, maybe this gender identity stuff isn't real. First of all, you know, that's not permitted in our society. But, but even if it were, if everybody else around you is saying it is, you don't want to be the odd person out. You don't want to look stupid, you know? So I think there's a lot of that going on. That was very long-winded, sorry. I know I love every moment of it. Thank you. Yeah. The uh, well, first of all, I'm so interested to to learn more about Steve Hassan's work. Um, you know, I, I resonate a lot with coming out of the cult. You know, I I wasn't ever I didn't ever identify as trans. I'm certainly not uh, a detransitioner. Um, I, I'm over like a recovering you know trans ally. I would call myself. You know, I was never an activist, but you know, I was absolutely going around to my friends and my family saying, you know, I need to talk to you about, you know, something that I learned in my doula training, which is that, you know, um, I'm no longer using the words woman and mother to describe my clients. It's just not professional. It's not modern. It's not progressive, you know, because I had to explain myself continuously when I'd send my website out. It was like, here I am, I'm in this new profession. And everyone was like, what is this birthing person thing that you're, that you're sharing? Um, and yeah, so I can absolutely relate to the kind of indoctrination. And I'm also incredibly interested in the, I think what you're speaking to, right, is like the interception or what he's studying. Like, how do people get out? Like, what series of events happens to kind of snap people out of cult, cults, essentially? Um, and... I thought about that a lot because, you know, I was more focused on trying to like get people out, wake people up. And I've since like shifted my energy more towards strengthening the women who are already there to then go into their communities and support their families and their clients and so on. Um, But it's still such a fascinating question. And, and, you know, I think, yeah, speaking to the kind of getting ostracized, it's not just about the trans thing it's really hard to just like end there. You know, if, if you realize that you've been duped in that way, in a huge, huge way, I mean, it's, it's only natural to then want to, ex- you know, potentially explore other avenues of your life or society that, you know, you know, you know feels true, but maybe isn't as firm and true as, as one might thought, think. So, um, yeah, I thought about that. It's scary. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think is really scary is for someone who's so far down the rabbit hole that they think that men can be women and women can be men, pulling out of that has just got to be terrifying because it's just so glaringly wrong. And it's humiliating too, I think, on a sense. Like I could see how... I remember feeling slightly humiliated when people were challenging me about what I was saying, you know, and and I've been in conversations with people who are like loosely on the trans train. And then I, and I, and I'm speaking to them and I realize, oh my gosh, this person still doesn't know or, or like believe that sex is dimorphic. So anything else that we talk about, actually has no meaning 
because we're, we're operating from a completely different framework. And I've been in a number of situations where I've successfully relayed that, no, you know, I know that sex is dimorphic and you know it too. All mammals do, all mammals know. Um, and then there's this moment of just like, oh my God, you know, like I, how did I not know that when I actually do know that, you know, there's like these moments of, of yeah, just shedding and sometimes humiliation, embarrassment, yeah. So I guess the question is like, okay, well, what is it going to take to, you know, I wonder if it just has to get so severe in, in a person's life for them to risk their job, for them to risk their partnership, risk friends, risk kind of social status, you know, like, and I think, um, yeah, I'm super curious about that, that interception that you mentioned with specifically with the, with the detransitioners. I mean, I mean, my friends know who I am, right? My friends know who I am and they, they know my politics, you know? They know that, um, they know where I'm coming from. And the idea that one day I just sort of woke up and decided to start hating a group of people doesn't really resonate with them. You know, and so I have been able to talk to several of my friends about this stuff. We could talk about sort of strategies and how that can or cannot be effective. Um, I have lost friends. I lost one of my oldest friends um, from seventh grade. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, can I just quickly share the, the circumstances of the story of how that started? Please, I want to I want to hear everything. So I'm visiting her at our hometown in Ohio where she still lives. And uh, we've talked about everything since seventh grade, whether we're talking about politics or, you know, sex, relationships, jobs, we talk about everything. Nothing's ever been off the table. We've stayed up until 5 a.m. drinking wine, having really in-depth, great discussions. So I'm visiting her and I, we were talking about something and I just said, you know, can we talk about this gender stuff? And she literally went like this, no. And I said, wait, why? And she was she put her hands on her head again and she yelled, I don't want to talk about it. And I was at her house. So I respected that um, in the interest of having a pleasant visit. And um, we talked a few times after that. Uh, and, and we haven't spoken in years now at this point. And I just, there's something deeply, deeply wrong with an issue or a movement that my best friend of 30 or whatever years, literally, and this is an intelligent woman, <laughs> literally put her hands on her head and screamed, I don't want to talk about it. There's something wrong here. There's something very wrong when that happens. I, I can absolutely relate to that to that story, and I know a lot of women listening can absolutely relate. There is something so untouchable. It has this immunity. There's this like bubble of protection. Like you can talk about anything. You could disagree about anything, except for this. This is you know the most contentious, I would say, issue of our times. Absolutely. She, she and I used to have like knockdown drag out battles about Bill Clinton. She just thought Bill Clinton was great. And I just think Bill Clinton's a horrible person. 
And we would go on about this for hours and then like, you know, make up and go on and, and be friends. Um, no, and I have another friend who's actually a mutual friend of hers who's been PMing me to sort of try to figure out what's going on. This is a very intelligent woman who, um, she knows something's wrong. She doesn't know exactly what's wrong, but she knows something's wrong. And I just told her, this issue is more contentious than abortion. I can have an argument with the Republican about abortion. It's more contentious than religion. I'd be happy to have all sorts of conversations with Christians, you know, who don't like me about religion. Those conversations aren't productive, but they can happen. And it, this issue is more divisive than Donald Trump, right? Like this, this issue, and, and Donald Trump is one of the most divisive issues of the modern era. And, and this is worse. Because we can talk about Trump, like we can talk about that. And um, this, yeah, you're right. It's just untouchable. That, you know, I think, you know, kind of how it's manifested in terms of, of the way that um, the ideology really serves to pit children against their parents. That to me was a huge red flag, right? Anything that is going to separate mother baby is a huge problem, right? Uh, for humanity, you know, for the kind of humanity we want to see and, and live, live in. Um, and then the other part of that, you know, I'm not a mother, um, but, but for me, the huge red flag was, this is powerful enough to tear apart my most sacred sisterhoods, or at the time, we, you know, felt like the most sacred sisterhood. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of, you know, the, it wasn't, you know, in a professional sense, it, it didn't feel like I was losing anything. It didn't feel, um, it didn't have much remorse there. But yeah, losing the sisters over this issue, I think, has been the hardest part for me. And I know a lot of women who are coming to me. Um, and really, yeah, as you said, just speaks to the divisiveness to come between a mother and a child, to come between sisters. It's and, and how do people not, you know, again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm asking that in a really naive way because I was that person. Like, how do people not get it? How do people not see it? Um, That's its purpose, right? Its purpose is to divide. And this is nothing new, right? Um, you know, thousands of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago, I'm sure you know this more than I do, when, when women would gather and and talk with one another, they would learn things about their bodies. They would learn things about menstruation. They would learn things about pregnancy and about the use of herbs. You know, women would learn things and that was extremely powerful. And men didn't like that at all. So they divided us and they kept us in little, you know, we don't need to get into a whole thing about monogamy or marriage or anything, but you know, women coming together and talking and sharing knowledge and history and wisdom is extremely threatening to male power. So what you just said about dividing mothers and children and dividing sisters is the purpose. I mean, there's a larger purpose, which we can't lose, which is that it's, this is, this is much bigger than just these gender debates, right? It's part of a much bigger thing, as you know, from reading Jen Billick, you know, this is, this is, this is a movement to detach us from material reality. Whew. 
Yeah. You know, to your point earlier about, you know, you describing how your conversations with your, your boyfriend of, you know, had he not met you, he would have never, you know, thought about this issue. You know, I think, I totally think that's, that's the case for, yeah, not only trans ideology, but, but surrogacy is another one that stands out to me, um, is one that, that people just don't kind of consider, um, being any kind of issue for anyone ever. It's just kind of this like on the periphery, you know, stuff that, that people don't come come across day to day. Um, with with that in mind, you know, with with our knowledge of how the media is controlled and the algorithms right now, where do you see the need for women to to organize? Like in what way do you see it being the most effective at this point in time for for women to organize? So a couple things, one on an individual level and one on more of a movement level. On an individual level, one thing that I have been successful in doing with respect to my friends is asking really, um, asking questions and not letting them get away with evading the answers, right? So I had a friend contact me and this is an extremely intelligent woman and she contacted me and she said, what's your issue with the trans thing? So I just asked her, what do you mean by the word trans? And she, her response was, well, I mean, transgender. And I said, okay, what do you mean by that? And she paused and she gave some, you know, well, I guess it means the gender that's different from your gender, you know, some circular thing. And finally I got her to acknowledge, you know, she said, I guess I don't really know what it means. And then rather than taking a cudgel to the whole thing, I just said, okay, you're an attorney, you're highly educated. Uh, Are you in the habit of using words that you have no idea what they mean? And she was like, no. And so I said, why are you doing it now? And she said, okay, that's a good point. I'll have to think about it. So I didn't come at her with like, Andrea Dworkin, Radfem 101, you know, I didn't do that. I just allowed her to do her own questioning, to question herself into her own wisdom. And I was able to do something similar with um, another old friend. It, it was a little bit different, but I just got her to acknowledge that women are female and men are male. And, you know, once you're there, that's, that's pretty much it. So on an interpersonal level, we can go here with our friends we, it takes time, shockingly or not. It can take years to sort of cultivate these conversations, but it's good to start with people who already know and trust us, right? People who already know that our hearts are in the right place, that we are compassionate people, and you know, and and people who trust that we're that we're coming from a place of compassion and a desire for the for the world, you know, to be a healthy, sane place to live. On a movement level, um, maybe I'll just touch on this question of of working with the right because I know it comes up in a lot of discussions, and you know I got a lot of pushback for going on Tucker Carlson. I I was part of a webinar of the Women's Human Rights Campaign several weeks ago. I don't know if your if your audience will be familiar with WHRC. Okay. Yes, definitely. So I was on a webinar and we were, we were talking about this question and the women on the webinar were, were very adamant that it's not even a question of left versus right. 
And I don't even mean that in the way that we typically mean it when we say it. I don't mean it's a bipartisan issue, though it is. But the women who were talking were more talking about getting ourselves psychologically out of the whole right-left paradigm and be thinking about what it means to have a, an authentic, cohesive women's movement that always asks the question about any policy issue, what impact will this have on women? That's the question. So if we're talking about housing policy, what impact is this going to have on women? If we're talking about, you know, an environmental issue, maybe we're talking about water policy in a city. What impact is this going to have on women? We have to decolonize ourselves out of this whole patriarchal um, political system and really be willing to join with women and fight for the needs and interests of women. Obviously things get tricky when it comes to issues like abortion, right? That's gonna be a really difficult one to solve. If the question is how is this gonna impact women, my answer to that question is gonna be very different from a conservative woman's answer to that. But let's, let's you know work in good faith and trust that each other is working in good faith and let's go forward. Thank you for speaking to that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the, the kind of programming around the trans cult, I think I'm kind of recovering from the programming um, of hating conservatives, you know, and, and, I, and I come, half of my family affiliates with a conservative party, you know, and so, there's there's a lot of kind of I think I don't want to say ego but just shedding that needs to happen. But um, you know I think for for my generation I, I don't really I didn't really feel like we were coming together for a com common cause ever. I really don't feel like you know when I think about growing up and what we were talking about and kind of like fighting for. Um, there, there wasn't, I think I was kind of um, coming off of access to birth control and still thinking like that that was liberation, you know, thinking like, oh, thank God, all these women fought so hard for, for me to take, you know, uh, um, pharmaceutical drugs and actually know nothing about my body and be completely dependent on something outside of myself. Um, and beyond that, it's, I, I really didn't grow up with a kind of common cause, a sense of common cause. So I think you know, what, what's being cultivated now, hopefully, and, you know, is, is a, a really a clear vision of common cause, right? And us coming together and, and really seeing that, no, this is actually worth, it's actually worth it. We actually don't have any other choice, but yeah, the, the sacrifice question comes up a lot, um, or maybe accusation, I should call it, um, where women will say to me, you know, leave the trans people alone. They're not doing anything to hurt you. They just want to live their lives. Leave them alone. It's not a pie. Um, come out of scarcity mindset. Um, those kind of rebuttals that, that we hear all the time. Um, and I think this is just perhaps just a level of denialism um, as kind of symptomology of, of liberal feminism as it exists, which is that, you know, women have achieved what we need to achieve. We've gotten where we need to be and 
our work is is done and now we are so uh free that we can we can no longer you know we don't have to slut shame anymore and we can finally say that sex work is work and you know that surrogacy is beautiful and romantic and empowering so um that that gap i think is i mean i don't usually use the word privilege but um it seems like a huge privilege to, to believe that that's true and that that's the case to be so um, indoctrinated in, into trans ideology. And a friend of mine said to me, you know, um, how, how nice it must feel to be like not the most oppressed or the most disenfranchised, to feel for, for women to feel like for a moment that, um, that they have everything they need, which is absurd to our own demise. <laughs> it is, it, it is really absurd. And um, yeah, I think that's right about common cause. And the potential is so exciting. And we have to remember, you know, we have to remember second wave feminists were engaged in real amazing practical work, right? We, I don't, you know, thankfully most of us do not end up in a domestic violence shelter, but some women do. And thank, you know, we have our sisters, our second wave sisters to thank for those domestic violence shelters. I hope that I will never need one, but if I do, I will have second wave feminists to thank for them. And, you know, they were engaged in such amazing, amazing work. And um, I think you're right. We've lost a lot of that, but, you know, there's no need to give up. There's really no need to give up. We can just, we can keep going. We have to understand that things, okay, so we have the right to vote. That's nice. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm very happy about that. Um, but this movement denies our rights as women. You know, it denies that we even have sex-based rights. And um, it's appalling in its, misogyny and it's you know regressiveness it's just horrible you know the the idea that somebody who likes pink is a woman is pathetic really it's no different from 20th century chauvinism it really isn't you know i i, I share a lot of um like media clips on my instagram page of just the most absurd kind of netflix shows that are propagating you know, the misogynistic um, uh, stereotypes that, that, that you're describing. And people will write to me and say, like, is this a parody or is this real? People, we can't, you know, the, there's been such a kind of, um, the propaganda is so strong that it's, it's really, it's hard to identify. You know, I find myself also, I'm like, is this parody or is this real? Please tell me this is parody. But it's not. We all know that it's, it's absolutely not. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that it is really exciting and I, I feel the excitement. I wouldn't be doing this work. I don't think any of us would be doing this work if we didn't also feel solidarity and sisterhood and vitality and excitement about uh, the potential of, of what we can do at this moment in time. So um, would you mind sharing a little bit about what's happening on uh, March 8th? Yeah, so as a way to segue into that, I really want to encourage anyone in your audience who has not already watched the movie Iron Jawed Angels 
to do that. It's not a very well-known film. It's available on, um, I forget who, it used to be free on YouTube, but they ended that. Um, but Hilary Swank plays Alice Paul, who is, you know, one of the main reasons why we have a 19th Amendment. And it's a really beautifully filmed movie and it's just incredibly inspiring. It is so inspiring to watch what those women did to get us the 19th Amendment. So I just want to encourage that. And to segue that into March 8th, after this uh, executive order that uh, President Biden signed on his first day in office, my heart just sank. Like my heart just absolutely sank. And I was, I called our mutual friend, Courtney, uh, mostly to whine. And in the course of that conversation, I was just sort of thinking out loud. And I've watched Iron Jot Angels a ton of times. And so the images are sort of emblazoned in my mind of women picketing the White House. And one of the signs that they carried said, Mr. President, when will women be liberated? And I thought, we are still dealing with that very question. Look, Joe Biden, when will women be liberated? Listen, Mr. President. And I was talking with our mutual friend, Courtney, and I just said, like, maybe we need to picket the White House suffrage style. Same are we allowed to swear on your show? Absolutely. Same shit, different century. That's what's going on here. And Courtney was all about it. And she said, let's go. So she's been absolutely amazing. She's coordinated, you know, a core team of organizers and all sorts of volunteers and all sorts of different positions and delegates to do things in their own states. And there's just so much going on and it's extremely inspiring. And, um, you know, I, I myself want to use a lot of suffrage imagery because I don't think this is different. I have that. I have the question for Mr. President, same one that the women had at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, so we're just we're going to we're going to be safe. We're going to comply with D.C. COVID protocols. We are absolutely going to be, you know, completely we're going to stay within the law. Uh, Courtney's been amazing about getting permits. We're going to have all our permitting done. Um, and we're going to demonstrate to Joe Biden that women are not going to stand for this. We're just not going to do it. Same shit, different century. Let's go. Can I say anything more about that? Is there anything specific you want me to say? Um, no, no, I think that says it all. It's, it's really, it's actually quite simple. You know, the, our work is, is not done. In fact, yeah, we're, we've gone back, we've gone totally backwards. So no, I think it's, it's very clear. And um, I think also, you know, the, the kind of the human, the, the connection of us actually all being in the same space will be super, super important and vitalizing as well. Um, you know, I think it's remarkable that we've had so many like Zoom calls and, and interviews and groups. And, and then there's also something that just cannot, um, there's some, there's magic that will happen when, when women will gather in person and, know and pick it together so so you, you mentioned that women can become delegates in their state and the women can also donate money if they can't actually be there or volunteer they can send money to help um the cause is that right yes there's a there's a donate um page that's that's i believe it's linked in the facebook group which is called uh women picket dc amazing so yeah and if if um if women want to get more active at the federal level in dealing with um, 
actually pushing back on the on the order. The order that President Biden signed on Inauguration Day does not actually change existing law. It requires all federal agencies to to examine their existing policies and propose changes within 100 days. So all hope is not lost. We have 100 days from the date he signed the order to persuade our federal agencies that what he's doing is really terrible for women and girls. So, so we need to understand that. We also need to understand that we can expect to see the Equality Act reintroduced uh, before Congress soon, possibly the end of this month. And that is also bad for women and girls for the same reasons. So I say all of that to say that if anyone wants to be involved in taking action, what you can do is first sign the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, if you haven't already, and if you're a U.S. signatory to the Declaration, you can fill out a volunteer application and participate in a working group for a group of WHRC women who are pushing back. And the reason I just want to share that, it's not a plug for my group, which I'm happy to do, but I understand that there are some women who can speak out about this and there are some women who can't. And if you are a woman who wants to take action and you're unsure what to do and you don't know if you can speak out, please become a volunteer with WHRC because working with the women of WHRC does not require you to be public or anything. You know, we can use everyone's skills. Everyone has something to bring to this fight. We need everyone. We need everyone working together in this fight. Um, and you'll get information about uh, how to do advocacy at the federal level. And you can do advocacy with your House representatives and your senators without being public. You can get a meeting, they'll schedule the virtual meeting, they'll have a conversation, they'll hear your concerns, and that's not public at all. So there are a lot of things that women can be doing, even if they don't think they have skills, and even if they don't think they can be public. I also want to mention that it's actually not that hard. Like copying and pasting an email every day for a couple months actually isn't that hard. You know, like there are templates like WHRC has done the work of making this the phone scripts and the email templates. And, you know, if even if women start there, it, it doesn't you know, it, it, I think the issue is so big that um, stepping into advocacy could seem potentially overwhelming and hard. And, and I just want to relay that it's 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 not hard. It's not hard. Absolutely. Um, so we were having a conversation in a breakout group after one of the WHRC webinars. And one of the women who was participating was working really hard intellectually and asking some really good questions to try to get her head around what is actually going on here. And my thought about that was that here's a woman who is using her intellect and her critical thinking skills to to try really hard to understand something that fundamentally does not make sense. And we have to get out of the trap of thinking that there's something wrong with us and understanding that we're smart women, we can do this, the problem is not us. So if, if anyone is having trouble making sense of this, you are, you are using what I'm sure is a really powerful intellect and great critical thinking skills to make sense, to try to make sense of something that does not make sense. And honestly, it's just much more liberating to just understand that it doesn't make sense and to turn our attention to fighting for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. Thanks for the chance to say that. Thank you for, for mentioning that. And yeah, it, it, it speaks to the, oh, the way that we're socialized to just internalize everything wrong, 
you know, it's always something that, that, that we're not getting, that, that we missed, rather than it being like societal thing, right? It's much easier to think that it's, it's our problem versus an outside kind of issue. And, you know, I, I had some insecurity about um, having not read all the books about why trans ideology is wrong or why prostitution is wrong. Um, but ultimately what brought me to this was like intuition, which was like, this is messed up. I, I'm, I'm literally not, not allowed to speak. This is, you know, and then I like kind of caught up on the analysis and the intellect part after, but you know, women don't have to even call themselves radical feminists to know that this is wrong. You know, and I hear that with, you know, like the, the fear of being a bigot or a fear of being um, regressive when I'm almost say, you know, I'm just not comfortable with my kid, you know, my daughter in a restroom where men are allowed. And like, you know, I know that's probably something I need to just work through, but it still feels weird. And it's like, no, 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 there's, there's nothing you have to work through. We need to like actually amplify that discernment and the boundary and, and all of that, you know, so, so women who... Um, haven't yet even put the pieces together. I think we all know fundamentally why it's wrong to have men in our spaces. Like, and even if intellectually we're being over, you know, it's, we're overriding, oh no, I can't, I can't appear, you know, hateful. Our bodies, our nervous systems are saying, uh, -uh this is not cool. This is not safe. And that's the kind of the testimonies from the detransitioned women who I've spoken to too. It's like, you know, their, their mind is saying, I am a man, I am such a man. But then when they went into the men's bathrooms, there's this other part, you know, there's, you know, the kind of the truth, which is that I'm still not safe here. And this is actually not a safe place for me to be. So how do I contend with both of those, those things? Um, so thank you so much for, for speaking to that. Yeah. It's been a really rich conversation for me and I really appreciate having it in part because usually when I speak on these things, I'm speaking in very nuts and bolts sort of, you know, legal language and we're talking about executive orders and we're talking about lawsuits. And I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of explore the wider issues around, you know, what are we really doing with our movement and how can we move forward? And so I've just really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.